Disclaimer. All content from this show are for comedic purposes only. This information should not be considered complete. And should be taken with salt and pepper and cumin. Oh and by the way. Warning. Warning I say all content in the show is intended for adults due to the strong subject matter and graphic nature of the language the information may also not be up to date and is not intended to be used in place of a visit consultation or advice of any other professional. Thank you very kindly. Now let us proceed thank you and enjoy the Adrian. Lozano Show. Konnichiwa! Welcome to the Adrian Lozano Show, episode 108. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, I am your host, said person, and um, I am a pronoun, aren't I? Um, I'm not anti-noun. I think nouns are okay, when you really think about it. Aren't nouns just a person, place, or a thing? I mean, when you really think about it, you know? Are you really thinking about it? Boy, this guy's not funny! Oh! Hey, what's going on? So, this is the comic book episode that I told you about last time, and then we did the penis fingers thing. Listen, I was actually out of town, so you'll have to excuse me on that uh, mishap, um, but I still think the episode was funny nonetheless. Uh, in spite of your, you know, shortcomings, you still barely delivered, you know, it's like, why, thank you. I kind of tried. First time listening to the show, I have not been drinking. But, if you're into drinking, check out um, Stark Raving on YouTube. Uh, a buddy of mine's finally found his niche, um, and his nephew. Uh, he's, um, that's a paper towel for absorbing. Um, I bet you're wondering what I'm wearing. It's probably khakis. I had to look down. Okay. Um, the, uh... The show, it's uh, Stark Raving with um, Jason Navarro, and he uh, he's doing these beer reviews that are really cool. I, um, yeah, good for him. Good for you, Jason. Um, um, anyway, moving on. Uh, I think what he's doing right now on YouTube is great. Uh, I think what I'm doing right now on YouTube is also good in its own way. Did I say konnichiwa? Okay, so... Um, this is episode 108, um, and it great, because this is the stuff that you get to enjoy. It's just a bunch of articles, and me gathering up the shattered pieces of my self-confidence and trying to not be such a downer. Uh. Okay, enjoy the show. The Adrian Lozano Show. Adrian Lozano Show, everybody. I'm Backy, and of course, your host, 
Adrian Lozano. How two wildly different Sonic the Hedgehog cartoons happened in the 90s, Polygon. In 1993, there wasn't a character in America more popular than Sonic the Hedgehog. According to a New York Times report from that time, in just two years, Sonic had become a $1 billion-plus business himself. Because of Sonic's initial success, the Times claimed that Sega was not only threatening to topple Nintendo, but also aiming at Disney's control of the world of entertainment. With the Hedgehog's surging popularity, it made sense that Sega wanted kids to have their eyes trained on Sonic even when they turned off their Genesis consoles. The chili dog-loving Speed Demon would soon appear in comic books, merchandise, and that fall, animated series. And not just one, Sonic became the first character in animation history to star in two separate shows that aired at the same time. Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, developed by Kent Butterworth, The Ren and Stimpy Show, Phil Harnage, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, and Bruce and Reed Shelley, The Super Mario Bros. Super Show. Premiered on Sept. 6, 1993. The Screwball, Tex Avery-style comedy ran for 65 episodes, and one special. Every episode followed Sonic and Tails as they went up against Dr. Robotnik and his robot cronies, thwarting their plans to take over the planet Mobius. The show aired on weekdays in syndication in various Sonic the Hedgehog, usually referred to as Saturn, premiered two weeks later, and ran for 26 episodes over two seasons. This series had a higher production value than Adventures, and unfolded with a more cohesive storyline, despite airing on Saturday mornings on ABC. Even though Saturn and Adventures shared the same main character, who was even voiced by the same actor, Steve Urkel himself, Jalil White, the two shows couldn't have been more different from each other. Saturn's story was darker, taking place in a post-apocalyptic Mobius where Robotnik is almost in complete control of the planet. Sonic, Tails, and the rest of the Not Whole Freedom Fighters, a group of characters created specifically for the series, so, sadly, no Big the Cat, attempt to overthrow Eggman and free Mobius from his evil tyranny. The series separated itself from the usual Saturday morning fare by having the heroes, at times, fail to stop Robotnik's evil schemes. The characters also had to deal with grief over the loss of fellow Freedom Fighters. Saturn was also more mature than Adventures and most other Saturday morning cartoons when it came to the relationship between two of the main characters, Sonic and Princess Sally, his childhood friend and the planet's rightful ruler. In the second season finale, The Doomsday Project, Sally and Sonic share a celebratory and passionate kiss, certainly not something you would see on Tom and Jerry Kids. Saturn was developed by Len Jansen, the real Ghostbusters, Bruce Shelley, and Reed Shelley. Both series were produced by Dick, the company behind Inspector Gadget and Captain Planet, and it was DIC's Executive Vice President of Creative Affairs at the time, Robbie London, who came up with the idea to produce two different Sonic series. After Dick pitched the darker tape to ABC, the broadcast network surprised Dick executives by not only expressing interest in having Sonic appear on their network, but offering the production company an on-air commitment. Usually they'll do a development deal, London told Polygon in a phone interview, but this property was so hot they said, you know what? Let's do it. With a deal in place, Dick wanted to take things one step further by not only having Saturn air on ABC, but also have it air on first-run syndication, which had never been done before. Dick did something similar with the real Ghostbusters in the late 1980s. After its first season aired on ABC, the second and third seasons aired simultaneously, the second in syndication, the third on the network. Dick went back to ABC and pitched its idea to Mark Pedowitz, then the senior vice president of business affairs and contracts, and currently the president and CEO of the CW. 
Pedowitz, who London remembers as being a formidable, intimating guy, swiftly rejected the idea, telling London, if you guys want to do syndication, be our guest, go with God, but you won't be on our network. Disappointed, Dick almost dropped the idea, as the clear choice between syndication and network was network every time. Network was always the preferred placement, London said. The license fees were better, and you got one license fee up front, without having to piece together the financing. Plus, network shows got better ratings. Even with his initial idea shot down, London wasn't deterred. He went to his boss, Andy Hayward, and presented him with an alternative, what if we reapproach ABC and do the following, we do two series simultaneously, but they will be completely different, so no one will confuse the product. Hayward liked the idea, so they ventured back to ABC and pitched what would become adventures. To their surprise, ABC obliged. London had no idea as to why this hadn't been done before, but he did know why it was being done at the time. Necessity is the mother of invention, he said. One thing about Andy Hayward and Dick at the time, we were extremely innovative when it came to the marketing and distribution of our ideas, and they had to be. Dill had to consistently come up with unique ways to stay competitive against animation studios with major studio backing like Disney, Warner Bros., and Fox, all of which also owned TV networks, and other independent studios like Sunbow and Nelvana. There was a lot of competition for a limited number of time slots, and London said that he and his team at Dick were required to find innovative ways to finance our shows. Image Dick Entertainment, ABC. Saturn ran until December 1994. A third season was planned, but before production could begin, ABC cancelled the series. London assumes it was either a ratings decision or a change in direction. Disney bought ABC in 1995, and in a video interview for the Saturn DVD release, writer Ben Hurst said that the show's second season was up against the most popular children's show airing at the time, Fox Kids' Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And if it wasn't getting pummeled by Power Rangers in the ratings, Saturn wasn't airing at all, as episodes were delayed whenever ABC decided to air sports instead of cartoons on weekends. Dick produced one more Sonic series, 1999's Sonic Underground, a complete reboot where Sonic and his siblings Sonia and Manic go on a quest to find their missing mother, and again try to overthrow Robotnik, who rules over Mobius. The show ran for 40 episodes, and was followed by two more Sonic cartoons, TMS Entertainment's Sonic X in 2003, which was the first Sonic anime series to air on Fox, and 2015 Sonic Boom, a CG animated series produced by Technicolor Animation Productions. Both ran for two seasons. Hearst, who died in 2010, became quite active in the Saturn fan community, and even shared details with fans about his attempts to revive the series, either with a full third season or a feature film. Sega passed on those efforts, but the series does live on thanks to Fans United for Saturn, a fan group that has kept the show going in the form of a webcomic. The group has also funded a fan film, and a subsection, Team C3 Sun, has been producing a fan-funded, unofficial third season since 2012. Much like the balloon that flew above Midtown Manhattan in the 1993 Thanksgiving Day Parade, the hype around Sonic deflated. Almost 30 years since his first appearance, in the immediate aftermath of his big-screen debut, Sonic is mainly an afterthought as far as video games are concerned. The blue bus saw couldn't make the transition to 3D, and now it's a small miracle we can get anything close to a good Sonic game. So while today he's just another face on the character select screen in many Nintendo Party games, there was a time where Sonic was king, so popular that he was able to get two animated series made at the same time, something that hadn't happened before or since. Sonic the Hedgehog is streaming on Stars and CBS All Access, and for free on Tubi TV. Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog is streaming on Stars, CBS All Access, and Netflix.
Gamasutra, Sonic the Hedgehog's origin story, according to the devs who made him. It's been over 20 years since the debut of Sonic the Hedgehog, and today at GDC 2018 two of the game's original developers spent an hour diving deep into the story of how Sega's iconic Blue Hedgehog came to be. Original game designer Hirokazu Yasuhara, who now works for Unity in Japan, joined original character designer Naoto Oshima, a VP and co-founder at Arzest, on stage to talk about what it was like to try and create a memorable character for Sega in the 90s. The question is, why a hedgehog, then? said Yasuhara. The answer, it's a character you can imagine dealing damage by curling up like a ball and rolling around. It wasn't the only idea, of course, they also considered making Sonic an armadillo, a porcupine, a dog, and a surly old guy with a moustache. This last idea eventually made its way into the character design of Eggman Dr. Robotnik. The story of how the Sonic team settled on a hedgehog is a bit wild. Oshima says he had planned a trip to New York while the aforementioned character discussion was happening internally, knowing that the team wanted to see examples of characters along these lines, he sketched them on boards in Central Park and started showing random passers-by, gauging their reactions. The result was, the hedgehog was most popular, people pointed at it and really liked it, said Oshima. The second was Eggman, and the third was the dog. He says he asked himself why that might be, and eventually settled on the answer that lots of people chose the hedgehog because it was cute and transcends race and gender and things like that. So he brought the sketches back and decided to pitch the hedgehog as the game's mascot. While designing the character that became Sonic, Oshima said the idea was to make something striking that could also be drawn by children. They focused on two big points, the big, connected eyes and a spiky blue skin. In creating this character, we didn't want it to be too foreign or too pronounced, added Oshima. We wanted a level of familiarity, and even comfort, dot the point was to make it into a character that feels familiar. In retrospect the pair said that the design of Sonic was freighted with concerns about what a mascot for Sega should be. For example, Sonic is blue because Sega's brand is blue, he's an animal because it's easier to be politically correct if your mascot is a colorful animal. A cute, cool, hedgehog is a good ambassador for Sega's youth-oriented brand. Cool can be something that's more on the surface, visual or expressive, or just cool character design, dot but that wasn't the cool that we were looking for, said Oshima. Instead, he said the team wanted a character that was cool, because of his attitude, he wouldn't follow others' orders and would always fight for what he believed in. There was another element of American culture that went into Sonic's design. Oshima was really into leather jackets, emblems, and airplane nose art at the time, so he presented Sonic to the higher-ups as part of the fictional story of a brave pilot. The pilot earned the nickname, Hedgehog, due to the way his hair always stood straight up, and the nose art on his plane was an image of Sonic. He eventually married an author of children's books, and one of her books is the story of the original Sonic the Hedgehog game. Now that you know a little bit about the story we wrote in coming up with Sonic, I think you can see why the Sonic emblem, on the title screen of the original game, looks the way it does, added Yasuhara. He went on to point out that a lot of the defining characteristics of the original Sonic, smooth geography like loops and tunnels, multi-scrolling, lots of objects, rings, etc. on screen, were created to try and showcase what the Sega Genesis, Mega Drive could do. But as it turns out, a good portion of the game's design was done by hand, with pen and paper. To design levels, Yasuhara says, I actually didn't have proper game design documents. Instead, he'd sketch out a design on paper, then show it to an artist and discuss how they could make it work. Levels would be drawn by hand, assembled from the limit of 64 parts, or panels in each zone, though some would be off-limits since they were background assets. 
Enemy design was a similar process, enemies would be sketched out on paper, then shown to the team, who'd then discuss how, or if they should be implemented. The animations were also roughly sketched out on paper. A fully photographed example of sonic level design by hand, designs exit out were ultimately scrapped. So for Eggman or any of the other non-player characters, it was the same flow, said Oshima. I did not have any experience as an animator, so I had to spend a lot of time watching anime, scrubbing back and forth to see how it was done, said Oshima. He went on to recall that he really wanted to implement a dancing animation for Sonic into the game, going so far as to sketch it out in great detail on paper. But it wasn't quite feasible, and so it never made it into the final version. In the end, Sonic the Hedgehog launched in 1991 and was bundled in with Sega Genesis consoles, something the pair say helped the company surpass Nintendo in the market. Looking back on the process, the pair offers three pieces of advice for fellow devs. There are always going to be ways to compete with what you think are unbeatable opponents. Make technology your ally. What I mean by this is, anyone can go out and try to make use of new technology. But more than that, I think it's a tool that can be used to sort of beat out an opponent that had always had the number one position up to that point, said Yasuhara. It's more difficult for people at those companies to make change happen. Gather allies, aka, get the band together. We're a team, but we're very opinionated and speak our minds, concluded Yasuhara. So in a way, we are individually having solo performances or solo acts, but once I projected my solo act, someone else reacted to that, someone else reacted to that, and there's infinite possibilities if you look at it that way, dot not just in games, but in whatever you're working on. Fun fact, after the panel was over, moderator, and occasional Gamer Sutra contributor, Brandon Sheffield asked both Oshima and Yasuhara to quickly sketch Sonic Live on stage. Here's what Oshima came up with. And here's Yasuhira's work. The Flash officially makes DC's Sonic the Hedgehog part of the family. Warning, the following contains spoilers for The Flash 761 by Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter, and Steve Wands, on sale now. As Reverse Flash enters into his endgame to defeat the Flash once and for all, the supervillain assembled his own legion of Zoom. Thorne went through the timeline and recruited Barry Allen's most brutal foes onto one big team. Not to be outdone, Max Mercury, who has made it his life's work to study the Speed Force, opened a portal and enlisted some speedsters that haven't been seen in a while. Dark Flash, The Flash from Kingdom Come, and The Earth 2 Jason Garrick are a few of the speedsters who have come to help the Flash defeat Thorn and his Legion. One of the more interesting recruits is Crackle, a friend from Wally West's past. Continue scrolling to keep reading click the button below to start this article in quick view. Start now. Advertising. Crackle's first appearance is in The Flash 136 in the story, The Human Race. The character is created by Mark Miller, Grant Morrison, and Paul Ryan and started off as Wally West's imaginary friend. When, a young boy, West talked to what he believed was an imaginary friend through the radio. Over time he stopped listening to the radio and just figured Crackle was a figment of his imagination. West is reminded of Crackle when a group of intergalactic gambler aliens arrive at Earth and present West with an ultimatum. West can either be part of a race throughout the space-time continuum, or the world will be destroyed. Advertising. Related, the Flash, Reverse Flash's secret superpower is absolutely devious. West, of course, agrees to the race and finds his competitor is Crackle, his, imaginary, friend from all those years ago. Crackle actually comes from the planet Quasar and is a race of radio frequency beings that are lightning fast and can communicate using radio frequencies. Though excited to see each again, Western Crackle's reunion is tainted by having to compete against each other for the safety of their respective worlds. 
Ultimately, Crackle sacrifices himself to save Flash, Earth, and his own home planet and race. Advertising. Crackle's appearance is what a radio frequency might look like if it came to life. It is also unavoidable to compare Crackle's appearance with another popular character, Sonic the Hedgehog. Besides his incredible speed, Crackle has shades of blue on his body and even has Sonic-like spiky tails for hair. Sonic the Hedgehog is one of Gaming's most recognizable and popular characters. Add to this Sonic's super speed, and there's no wonder why a version of him pops up in a Flash comic. Related, the Flash assembles the ultimate DC speedster team up. Crackle doesn't do anything in the Flash 761 that particularly stands out. Crackle, along with the other speedsters, helps send the members of the Legion of Zoom back to their own timelines. But just because Crackle isn't a part of the Flash family by blood, Barry points out that by him heeding Max Mercury's call to assemble makes him and the other non-blood speedsters, like Steadfast and Fuerza, part of the family. The Flash family is as much a brother, sisterhood of speedsters as it is a family united by blood relatives. Advertising. There's no doubt that Crackle is a Sonic-inspired character. With Sonic's easily identified appearance and popularity, it's easy to see why writers originally created Crackle to be part of the DCU, and with the Flash 761, this cements Crackle's well-deserved place as a member of the Flash family. Keep reading, The Flash, every villain who just joined the Legion of Zoom, explained. Share share tweet email. Zero. Comment. Wolverine turns a Daredevil villain into Logan's new rival. Related topics. CBR exclusives. Comics. Comic news. The Flash. CBR feature. About the author. Scott Scheuer, 82 articles published. Scott Scheuer is an avid comic book collector and reader, a writer, and a podcaster in the Austin, TX area. A former chef in high-end restaurants and food salesperson, Scott is now doing what he truly loves writing. He has four novels and four short stories published so far. When not writing, you can hear Scott on the Kirby's Kids podcast. More from Scott Scheuer. Advertising. Description. Blackout. Part 4 of 5. Wedding Days. Guest starring The Guardian, Gangbuster, Agent of Liberty, and Thorn. Story by Dan Jurgens. Art by Dan Jurgens and Eduardo Barreto. With the Man of Steel Mia, it's up to Gangbuster, Agent of Liberty, and Thorn to keep the city safe for the citizens of Metropolis until his return. Meanwhile, star investigative reporter Lois Lane, Professor Hamilton, and the Guardian search for her missing fiancé. Story continues in Adventures of Superman, 1939-2006, number 485. Includes a full 16-page Sonic the Hedgehog advertisement comic printed inside. The comic has the exact same story content as found in the original 1991 mini-comic, Sonic's first appearance in comic books, released as a promotional item in issues of Disney Adventures and Mean Machines magazines. Note, the advertisement may also have been given out separately with pre-orders for the Sega console. Cover price $1. Alrighty, this show's been going pretty damn good, skis. So I wanted to throw in another article. This last article is about making your own um, NES cartridges and how, really how that um, made this dude want to, um, just check out the article, it's funny. I mean, it's not funny haha, it's funny, oh. Inside the Kickstarter campaign to make hundreds of carts by hand. By Charlie Hall. On February 26, 2016, 11.30 a.m. New York-based electrical engineer Andrew Reitano is sitting on a hot hand, so he's decided to go for broke. Just a few days ago he launched a project on Kickstarter to bring his game Super Russian Roulette to life as a real product for the now 33-year-old Nintendo Entertainment System.
I immediately had two questions. How, in this day and age, does one go about manufacturing NES carts for fun and profit? And how did competitive suicide end up getting turned into a fun party game? A long day at the factory. Ray Tano says the story began a few years back when he cobbled together a reprogrammable NES cartridge. Instead of having to make a custom-built board for every single game like the original NES carts, Ray Tano came up with a universal device that fits inside a standard cartridge shell. So far, his campaign has raised over $30,000. That means he's on the hook to produce more than 400 Super Russian Roulette carts by November. And, even though he's developed that universal board, Ray Tano says that most of the work will still need to be done by hand. I've actually been working on refining the process over the past few years, Ray Tano said in an email. A bulk of the cartridges were made for a friend's game called Star Versus. In that time I was able to train up two tireless technicians who got making them down to a science by board 300. Right now I have a garage that is basically set up with workspaces for production of these boards. The typical process for me is to design and order a prototype printed circuit board domestically, prove out the circuit, then order a large quantity of blank PCBs overseas. The PCBs for the NES are an uncommon thickness and I pay a little extra for electroless nickel immersion gold, ENIG, to prevent corrosion on the edge connector. Ray Tano said he can get the rest of the parts, like integrated circuits and capacitors and whatnot, from online distributors. Then they're soldered into place using a template. The paste-like material is squeegeed through the template, onto the board and the various components are placed by hand using tweezers. Then, he puts a batch of boards into a toaster oven for just long enough for the solder to melt into all the right places. From there, the whole thing gets glued into a custom-made NES case fabricated by Paul Malloy and shipped off to backers. It's exhausting, he said, but really rewarding to see the project through from software to hardware to product. A crazy game of poker. Aside from the power glove, the Zapper light gun is probably the most recognizable peripheral for the classic NES console and Ray Tano says it was always a goal of his to build a game around it. In Super Russian Roulette players, and their television, sit gathered around a table taking turns pulling the trigger with the light gun pressed to their heads. An animated cowboy keeps the action moving, taunting players as the tension builds. It's a bit of a departure from the family-friendly fare found in many Nintendo games. That's part of the gag, and one of the reasons the game won the Audience Choice Award at last year's Fantastic Arcade in Austin, Texas. The game was always centered around the idea of a high-risk game of chance that could only take place in the excessive machismo of a spaghetti western saloon, Ray Tano said. It's a virtual representation of an extreme thrill-seekers parlor game. But tongue-in-cheek as it might be, it's still a game about players shooting themselves in the head. And, unlike the Persona series, the in-fiction result is player death. The game is meant to use the zapper in a bizarre, subversive way, but new players at the table bond under the weirdness of having the gun they grew up with pointed the other direction for the first time. SRR is about beating the odds and cheating death with friends. Death is a consequence, and a cartoonish one in the context of playing. It's not the goal. I never intended to associate the game with the real-life horror and desperation of taking one's own life. It's a dark game of chance, but it's never played alone and always played voluntarily. I would never want to upset anyone. Riatano's campaign, which has already met its goal, runs through March 22. The NBA 2K21 trailer is a legit next-gen WoW moment. 
Monster Hunter Rise's dog companion will be the player's best friend. Wolfenstein, Dishonored, and Prey collections rated for Xbox Series 10. Apex Legends update nerfs rates Naruto run. Comments. As awesome as this is, why would you glue the board in? All my NES carts come apart easy and you can interchange the boards by removing three screws. By Jarrett, J. Dykstra on 226.16408pm. So why would you buy this banned new cart just to take it apart and interchange the board? In fact, how often does anyone actually need to dismantle their NES cartridges just to interchange the boards? Why would you even have that many bare cartridge boards laying around anyway? I've collected hundreds of NES cartridges and rarely have I needed to take one apart. If your intention is to just take it apart to swap the board, then just use a different cartridge, or get an empty cartridge shell. Think about it. FYI, glue is quick and easy to assemble and it's also cheaper. As a cost-saving matter that's more important here. By Robarino on 401.16149 AM. I get the maker's point about never, intending, to associate the game with the real-life horror and desperation of taking one's own life, but that association seems unavoidable. Because it's a game where the central mechanic is pointing a gun at your head and pulling the trigger. It's a clever gameplay method, dot but, it rubs me the wrong way. Which isn't to say that this game is bad, or shouldn't be played. If everyone is totally on board with the experience, I'm sure it's fun. But you just might not know ahead of time who isn't on board with it. I guess you find out when they get super uncomfortable when you're discussing the game. You don't always know which of your friends has contemplated suicide, or knows someone that died from a self-inflicted gunshot. Maybe this game helps you find out. I'm struggling to think of another game where the way the controller is used has made me this uncomfortable, so kudos on that. This little Nintendo game project has actually made me think. Tangent, if, when, a game like this is made for VR systems, will it similarly be seen as goofy fun, or do you think the reaction would be different? By Swill on 226.16506pm. The NES came out in NA on October 18, 1985 which would make it a 30-year-old system 31 come October. I think the article writer meant the Famicom, Japan's, NES, which came out in 1983. Oops. By Jarrett, J. Dykstra on 226.161051pm. View all comments. Also, don't forget to like us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And follow at the Adrian Lozano Show. Well, I really, I've got to get going, and I'm um, pretty sure you do too. Um, just relax and... Live your life the way you want to. An error occurred. Try watching this video on, or enable JavaScript if it is disabled in your browser. Okay. Um, I see, I thought that was interesting. If I could build my own cartridge, if I could make my own game, it would probably be a ripoff of Tetris. But it would be probably like pornographic. But it would be my own game that I obviously took from somebody else but no 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 i would create i don't know probably like a first person game maybe first person like tetris like um you got anyway look i don't know i i 
I got a lot of weird ideas, a lot of terrible weird ideas. Um, here's an idea that I had before I left my home today. I thought, what if they had killed Superman's mom in uh, Batman uh, versus Superman? I would have imagined that the rest of that movie is just Batman and Superman hunting down thugs that were hired guns for Lex Luthor. And then at the end, kills Lex. Just, I don't know. I mean, the interrogation. When he's up there showing him Polaroids of his mom, he could have been like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to break every single one of your fingers now. Snap, 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 snap. And that was just your right hand. Where's my mom? As soon as he takes a deep breath, snap, 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 snap. That's his left hand. Now, where's my mom? <laughs> it's like, and if he even hesitated to say anything about her location. I mean, he could just rip that dude's arms and legs off. He could put his feet on top of Lex Luthor's feet and crush his toes. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's so rowdy. Like, he, he shouldn't have let it get to that point of, hey, I have your mom. It should have been like, um, I have your mom. It's like, okay, cool. I'm going to take you into space. And uh, just let you pop, and then I'll torture your men one by one until they tell me where my mom is. It's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's like, you don't give up, Superman. You don't go along and pretend fight Batman for a while. Anyway, all I'm saying is I think of random weird shit. Like, that was something out of the blue, out of nowhere. And um, I thought about it for about two and a half hours. I was thinking, man, that'd be awesome. And it's like, I'm going to kill every single one of them. It's like, and you're not going to stop me, Bruce. And Bruce is like, I'm totally going to help you, bro. And they're like, let's do this. What? I like Pulp Fiction. We give it a little Pulp fiction -ness. Oh. Good golly, Miss Molly. If you're listening, today's word... was a number. Let's just make it the word number. Okay, cool. Um, thank you so much. Make sure if you want to get a hold of me for any fucking reason, I don't know why you would, but um, maybe you got something you think I should see. Maybe you got something on your mind that you feel that you can tell a weirdo that you've never met before. Um, hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. I, um, I don't really get any messages, but, you know, Something would be nice. Um, you can just DM me directly or whatever. I, uh, if you sent me a random message, I'm not just going to ignore you. I will respond. Um, however, uh, saying that, it's, uh, don't be weird for, like, don't try to goose me in a weird way. Like, I had somebody repeatedly tell me they loved me, but it was from a different messenger. messenger. It was, I mean, it was a different person. But they all had the same icon, like the same um, avatar. So that was, I snapped to help myself think. It seems like I get snappy with people, but I'm just a thinker. Um, this might be a little weird. I always think of Dreamcatcher every time I snap. I think of that. It's like, might seem a little weird, but it's just something I do to help me. Timothy, uh, Timothy Oliphant. Something that helps me find things. And he's like fingering the air. It's like...
my keys. So how about that date? It's like, go fuck yourself, weirdo. Go finger the air. Drive away. All right. <laughs> um, this was a good episode to me. It was good. It treated me right. <laughs> um, it was a good episode. I really enjoyed the uh, facts about Sonic that I guess I already knew. Because uh, um, I'm weird like that. Look, sometimes you Google boobs. Sometimes you Google Spudoinkle. Spudoinkle. Do you remember that? Spudoinkle. Uh, Cannibal the Musical. It, the creator... Uh, uh, Matt and Trey from South Park, the guys who were also responsible for Orgasmo, they did a Western, uh, it wasn't called Spudoinkle, it was Can Cannibal the Musical. Oh, it's good stuff. It's very good stuff. Um, yeah, Spudoinkle. <laughs> All right. Um, expect another episode with uh, a few more interesting articles. I'm actually thinking about splitting up my shows because there's things that I want to bring to the show that aren't really, you know, nerdish like this. They're a little bit more creepy. Um, like news articles and shit like that that I find. I'm not a reporter. I'm not a reporter. But I am reporting the news? No, I'm delivering the news. Ah, from behind. Through your ears. Ah. Mr. Sheffield. Ah. You have been listening to The Adrian Lozano Show.